Consuming Folly. In the last episode of Cantillon Effects, we'd noted that Jim O'Neill had said on CNBC that the single most important thing in the world was the Chinese consumer. And his well-known American counterpart, Josh Brown, was similarly pushing a chart saying it was the American consumer who was still top dog. And then we had, in a slightly more sophisticated fashion, Gavacal weighing in on the manner in which monetary policy was said to have brought consumption forward. In this uh, first of a two-part instalment, I'm going to take a more detailed look at whether either of these concepts holds water, and of course a lot more besides. Like many such examples, both for common parlance and the use of technical buzzwords, there is a glimmer of truth in these pronouncements. But they're profoundly misleading in their conception, and this makes them conducive both to bad economic reasoning and ill-directed intervention. To start from the very beginning, this whole idea of the consumer is little more than a truism that for as long as we human animals experience both needs and desires, we will consume. Sometimes voluntarily less, but usually willingly more, whatever it is that fulfills those twin urges. So the real issue is more to do with what things are available to consume and how do people come by the means with which to acquire them once they've been called into being. And the answer, it should be no surprise to learn, is of course production. Production taken in the broadest possible sense. Now this stretches from the simple investment of time and labour involved in basic hunting and gathering all the way up to writing the software with which to program the microchips in order to control the robots which are used to make the machines with which we fabricate uh, and so on and so forth you get the point having thankfully moved long past the stage of grubbing in our own poor patch of dirt all the live long day so as to provide clothing shelter and sustenance all by ourselves what we civilized types now generally do is concentrating on providing some small input to that great interconnected network of our fellows which we call a market. In other words, we act primarily as producers in order that we can subsequently swap our inputs, usually in a very indirect manner and at some great remove from their final employment, for a wider combination of others' similarly productive efforts. Only then, and assuming that such things are not acquired in order to aid our further production, but rather to meet our personal needs, do we afford ourselves the option of becoming a consumer? With this in mind, we now face a twofold question, which is as easy to formulate as it, is, as it has proven difficult to resolve, no matter how many five year plans, seizures of the commanding heights, or implementations of industrial strategy have been attempted. The twin armed crux is this. How do we signal to one another what it is, out of a seeming infinity of possible choices, that we and others want, i.e. what we and they should take the time to make and then try to buy and sell? How do we bridge the ineluctable passage of time while all this moving making marketing comes to fruition is the second big issue. The answer to the first is that it basically comes about as a function of the market prices of things. The mechanism therefore runs most smoothly when these prices are least distorted by the apparatus of the state, whether through the imposition of taxes and tariffs or permits and prohibitions or good old-fashioned monetary manipulation. The second requirement is met when we introduce the concept of capital. 
both of what is usually referred to as the fixed kind, the sort that will be of repeated use doing a good number of consecutive acts of production, or the so-called circulating kind, that one-off component of a single round, which may need to pass through many hands and travel many hundreds of miles and undergo lots of modification and recombination before it fulfills its intended role, but which only does that once. As a brief but necessary aside, we must here emphasise that it is the role played by such items, by such factors in eco-speak, which is the decisive feature which qualifies them as constituting capital. It's nothing to do with their physical form as such. The same barrel of oil can, after all, be consumed in taking us to the beach on a holiday weekend, consumed, or it can be used in an intricate process to make carbon composite components of an aircraft wing. Whatever their composition, the creation and maintenance of both these kinds of capital clearly requires that we forego some portion of what we might call hedonic or pleasurable, or perhaps to get very Aristotelian, eudaimonic, satisfying consumption. And instead we work, or pay others to work on our behalf, to give different form to them. After all, even our lowly hunter-gatherer can't be roasting a rabbit over the campfire at the same time as he is napping the flint needed for the heads of the arrows with which he'll bag the poor beast's successor as his supper. And nor incidentally can he do this while he's acquiring the dexterity with which to chip the stone, or even while he's just practising his aim with his bow, in other words, while he's adding to what we now call his human capital. Production, therefore, necessarily involves time. And since the price of time, or perhaps better and more descriptively the price of timeliness is none other than the rate of interest, it's also vitally important that this too is formed naturally by a fine-grained emergent organic process from the actions of a multitude and buyers and sellers of future as well as of present goods. Those buyers of future goods we call investors or savers and the price they pay to acquire them is at root the surrender of the present goods whose enjoyment they voluntarily agree to forego for the contractual term of their loan. On the other hand, the most creative and useful sellers of future goods are the entrepreneurs who take the other side of this exchange. The aim of such entrepreneurs is to parlay a binding promise of a deferred sale into the means of acquiring the extant resources of today over which the current partly future-oriented owners, are willing to cede command. The entrepreneurs do this, of course, so they can build their plant, install their machinery, hire and pay their workers' upkeep, acquire the raw materials of the components, and then transpose, transform, transport them. And all this without having to accumulate the required reserves in isolation, without being limited by their own capacity to garner a sufficiently large, employable surplus. In a reasonably descriptive phrase, which has sadly since fallen into disuse, many economists used to refer to this as the wage or the subsistence fund, i.e. that which saw the enterprise through from first materials in to the cash till ringing and registering the, the gains at the end. Now to those enthused by the current vote for crowdfunding, that pool of voluntary savings which aims to help some promising new business get underway, we would point out that what we've just described shows that all that's new about this practice are a few legal and technical details. 
but that the concept is as old as commerce itself. We might also note that since savers give up today's use of their property in hope of receiving a richer replacement basket sometime hence, an enhancement of value which the entrepreneurs aim to realise through their skills and their actions, what the trade involves is the exchange of present for future goods. Thus, that part of the ratio between the two, which compensates the saviour for the passage of time, as opposed to the bits included which offset the various risks in which he's involved, is logically equivalent to, and hence naturally determines, the underlying interest rate applicable to the transition, in other words, the price of timeliness. Now, alongside the enterprising types who are borrowing only to able, enable creation and delivery of what they hope will be more highly valued goods and services, there will, of course, be a very different species of debtor or obligor whose hedonic need today surpasses the fruits of what their own prior productive contribution will allow them simultaneously to pay for. It's these people, and only really these, who can therefore be said to be bringing consumption forward, since they have to reckon with being able to do less of that consumption in the future when their loan finally comes due for repayment. But even here, it's key not to forget that, on the other side of this same bargain, their creditors' delayed recompense means that, in the round, these latter will enjoy an equal and opposite increase in the future in their spending power at the day of reckoning. Debt payments, then, whether constituting the return of principal or interest, are not, despite what so much trite commentary about their working seems to imply, a drain on the system. The money doesn't gurgle down a black hole into economic limbo land, but they're a transfer mechanism. Interest is no less a charge for services rendered, in this case our timeliness, than is a taxi fare or a lawyer's fee, as unwelcome either of these may also be when they're demanded of us to be paid. So in turn, what this means at the aggregate level is that many of the worries of the kind usually expressed about the magnitude of what we might say are productively barren debts are a little bit misplaced, and any malign influence being exerted by them must come about in more subtle, secondary, largely compositional ways. Always bear in mind that, had his contract been a little more conventionally drawn up, when his argosies founded, Antonio's temporary hardship would only have been Shylock's momentary enrichment. And, yeah, perhaps the former's tailor would have been subject to a certain disappointment, but the latter's wine cellar would have been rubbing his hands in glee, and he might even have been so happy that he treated himself to a new doublet in our good merchant's stead. Now, moreover, assuming this unfruitful kind of consumption were only to constitute a modest fraction of total borrowing, it might even be that those indulging in it will have become so much materially better off over the duration of their loan, not thanks to them, but thanks to the combined efforts of their more thrifty and more enterprising peers, perhaps. They might not notice the financial shortfall all that much when it at last arises. However, and here's the key point which seems to elude the mainstream, if this latter type of barren and productive borrower does come to dominate the market, it inevitably means there will be less saving being undertaken, in proportionate and possibly in absolute terms. In an unhindered market for timeliness, therefore, this shift in supply versus demand 
would inevitably cause interest rates to rise. And so only the entrepreneurs, who were the most confident that their efforts could add the greatest increment of value, could still justify bidding for a share of whatever diminished pool of funds were left over for their use. Put another way, only those projects deemed able to surmount the highest hurdle rates would ever be initiated. And as a result, the attempt to provide greater quantities of future goods would naturally be regulated by the greater urge to hedonically consume more present ones, a state, in the jargon, we call having a higher time preference. Now this means that the bogeyman of a society's debt-enabled exhaustive spending as a blight which will inevitably condemn it to a vast overcapacity is a bit of a phantom because the interest rate the price of timeliness, by correctly signalling the heightened scarcity of capital and its causative flip side, a diminished predisposition to save, would not ever allow such a body of inherently foredoomed capacity to ever be laid down in anticipation of a market which could not possibly then come to materialise. Now yes, this is a world destined to be a poorer place than it might have been since there will have been far less capital formation. And yes again, the moment of future settlement will be revealed as the culmination of what was little more than a zero-sum game between debtors and creditors, with all the associated societal strains that entails. Far poorer, that is, than if the loans had been extended for successfully productive purposes. But conversely, Thanks to the natural rise in interest rates, which such conditions would freely entrain, no great dislocation events, no wholesale deception about the extent of the available resources, no far-reaching incoherence in plans and prognoses would result, and so no looming economic earthquake need be feared.